Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the players' swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. All right, what's going on, guys? Open Championship Week, and I love getting up early, middle of the night, turn the TV on, and, and seeing world-class players with one leg in and one leg out of a pot bunker, just trying to figure out how, to, how the heck do you hit the shot? Like, How do you create these shots and, and, and stay in the mix? And I love the intricacies of Lynx Golf, and we're going to get into that, like just the bump and run. We're seeing so much more of second shots run up to the green this week at Royal Liverpool. And we're going to focus for this podcast on Lynx Golf, and specifically Lynx Golf in Scotland. And so for this podcast, i got Stephen Proctor, who is the co-host of Duffer's Literary Companion, and this is a golf historian, uh, a lover of golf in Scotland, and he's also written about the Monarch of the Green, uh, the Long Golden Afternoon as well. This guy has five times he's been to Scotland, got a lot of experience. But for us and what that experience is like, what it feels like when you're out of some of these courses, a lot of them, just like St. Andrews, they start in the old towns, wherever you are, whether that's Montrose, whether that's Dornoch, whether uh, that's St. Andrews as well. We're going to talk about the experience of being in that town and how much fun that is too, just being around town, the pubs and and the feel of, of that property. So that's the focus of this particular podcast. Montrose Golf Links is a place north of St. Andrews, which I was lucky to go to last year. We're going to focus on that as well. That's a course. It's probably playing about 35% when you look at compared to the greens fees that you pay for the old course. You're paying about 30 to 35% at Montrose, uh, but a great test of golf. It's the fifth oldest golf course in the world. So that's going to be one of the courses we focus on. I had a chance to play that course last July uh, in 2022, the week of the Open Championship. I went up there and Visit Scotland sent me that way, and they sent me to Angus County, the Angus Council. So I want to thank them, um, both the Angus Council as well as Visit Scotland, for that opportunity. I was out part of the played about five rounds of golf, five different golf courses, including this place, Montrose Golf Links, Downfield as well, places uh, in the area of Dundee, Scotland, which is a pretty popular town north of St. Andrews, pretty populous town north of St. Andrews, and this is the east coast of Scotland that we're talking about. So we are going to focus here on a few different courses, and, and the other thing too is there's often a couple courses that are on the property, right? In this case of Montrose Golf Links, you've got the 1562 Championship course, which does some open qualifying, and you got Broomfield, which is their smaller course, smaller greens, um, a little bit more narrow than you would find with the, with the championship course. But it, it's not that uncommon to have a property that you go to, a town that you go to, and they have two different courses, the east and the west course or championship course and then another course as well. So anyway, we're going to get into this here with Stephen Proctor. Lynx Golf in Scotland, that's the focus. And I hope you guys enjoy this here on Beyond the Clubhouse. 
All right, my next guest, I'm joined by Stephen Proctor, and he's a golf historian. Uh, narrative history is his big thing. That's what he's really known by. Two books that you would know from his, Monarch of the Green, Young Tom Morris, Pioneer of Modern Golf, and then the other one, The Long Golden Afternoon, Golf's Age of Glory, 1864 to 1914. Stephen, how are you doing today? What's up? I'm splendid. How are you? I'm just excited to be on the podcast with you and looking forward to talking about Scotland. And Scottish uh, golf. Yeah, no, it's it's well, it's it's a huge passion of mine. It, it hit a chord. I heard you on Shane Bacon's podcast. Get a grip. Uh, was it a month or two ago? And and I just love. I could just hear it in, in the passion in your voice. How much love you have for the game, but for specifically for Scotland, the experience of going to Scotland and playing golf there. And I, I want to start by asking you this: You've been to Scotland four times. 05, yes. 15, I believe nineteen, and also this past summer in twenty twenty two, and. Going forward, what are your goals now in future trips to Scotland, Stephen? Well, you know, I think the thing I would like to do more of is to explore the smaller courses in Scotland. And that's, you know, partly a fact, a function of the fact that I'm older now. And so some of the championship courses are just a very tough test for, for me these days. Whereas a place like Cullen or Montrose, and I, I just happened to see your uh, 42nd video of Montrose before I signed <laughs> on. Uh, those kinds of places are so much more fun for me because uh, it's more about keeping your ball in play and having certain shots in your bag than it is about distance. So I love the, uh, the I'd like to do more exploring of out of the way Scottish golf. And you see, I have an Ashkernish hat on. Uh, I, I am an honorary life member at Ashkernish. And so one of my big dreams is to get back there uh, as soon as it is humanly possible. Well, I'm glad you brought up Ashkernish because that's one of your favorite courses. I know just from your experience, the old Tom Morris trail you were on back in June and, and paint the picture for the, the golf fans who've never been to Scotland. What is that experience like setting foot on Askernish? Well, you know, any, you know, going to Scotland first off is a very interesting introduction to a different kind of golf than you play here in the United States. In the United States, it's more of an aerial target type of game where Scotland, it's a ground running type of game. So it's, it's, it, of course, there's quite a bit more wind everywhere you play in Scotland than there is ordinarily in the United States. So it's a different game that you got to begin with. So then when you take the next step of going out to Ashkernish, and many of your listeners will not know where it's located. Ashkernish is in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland on an island called South Uist. So if you're on South Uist and you were to sail west, the next thing you would connect to is Canada. So it's literally high North Atlantic, Titanic territory. And the wind is known to be somewhat brisk over the length of Ashkenish, let's say. I think it was blowing like 35 or 40 miles an hour when we played there. But the wonderful thing about it, Garrett, is it's like Ashkenish is a time capsule. It was designed by old Tom Morse in 1891 on a really amazing dunescape, the likes of which is not replicated in Scotland anywhere except maybe Makrahanish or Cruden Bay. Giant dunes unbelievable natural golfing landscape and then it disappeared around the time of the second world war and so in 2005 uh, a master greenkeeper named gordon irvine went there to go fishing and in the process of doing that rediscovered this golf course or he could see it essentially in the dunes he felt and he and martin ebert teamed up to bring back to life something that is a close up to a recreation of Tom's or Ashkernish as is possible. But the critical thing about it is they didn't install an irrigation system. Uh, the, the, so it is, 
exactly like playing golf as it would have been in 1891 uh, with incredibly wildly undulating greens that run at a very slow speed, probably five, six, maybe on a step meter around there. But the undulations are so fierce and difficult and the consequences of a miss, especially if you were to put it too hard and run off, are so dire that you really reacquaint you with the idea of what an art putting was in those days. So just a great experience and probably a great introduction to old Tom as a creator of golf courses, how he just found a way through that dunescape, how he picked these green sites that are spectacularly amazing. Uh, so it's really a wonderful place to start on the old Tom Morse trail or golf in Scotland for that matter. Yeah. And we'll get into more of the well-known open road of courses that are on that trail here in just a few minutes. But before you get to that though, Golf experience for you, was there a golf experience while you were still maybe a newspaper editor back in your, your Baltimore Sun, you were at the San Francisco Chronicle, while you were a full-time editor that made you realize you didn't want to go back to your old regular life? You know, was there something, either playing around golf or just an experience conversation that, that got you there? And, and I'll just quickly say, for me, I, I went to the 2010 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, and I was working overnights doing master control um, over at Comcast in Sacramento, which is about three and a half hours away. And I remember I, I got to play on the Monday after of the, of the open after GMAC won. And, and I, I stayed, it was a six hour round. Didn't matter. I had to work at midnight that night. We played at 1 PM, finished at seven. I had to drive three and a half hours to get back to Sacramento and work. So what I'm saying is that I didn't want to go back to my old life. I was on this high of having covered the open at Pebble. This is the greatest thing ever. I'm like, how am I going to go back to my old life after this life-changing experience covering my first major championship? So for you, anything like that uh, along those lines? It, you know, I had started reading a lot about golf history around 2003. And in 2005, by the time 2005 rolled around, I was, uh, you know, urgently interested in playing St. Andrews and seeing the city of St. Andrews. And so um, every September, people may be aware, there's an international lottery for free tea times on the old course. Yep. So I entered the lottery for myself and my best buddy, Lee Horwich, who's also in the newspaper game. And we had worked together a number of years at the Sun. And lucky us, we got a tea time at St. Andrews for a Monday morning. So uh, and at, at that time, one of the things that had gotten really jazzed up about going to Scotland was a piece that Herbert Warren Wind wrote for the New Yorker in 1964 called North to the Links of Dornick. I love that piece. I love Herbert Warren Wind as well as Bernard Darwin. But so once we had the tea time at St. Andrews, I decided that we were going to do the North to the Links of Dornick tour. And, you know, yeah. I made him read all kinds of articles. I made him read that piece from the New Yorker. He had to do homework. So uh, we... We basically went from St. Andrews, uh, we played that in Crail and the new course. Then we went up to Carnoussie, Royal Aberdeen, Dornock, and the north of Dornock to Brewer. So that was my first experience in Scotland. <laughs> and, and obviously, that's a pretty brilliant first experience. And it all went quite smoothly. And so uh, after that, you know, it, it, I couldn't get back to Scotland or Sc Scottish golf soon enough. It was like, it's like an awakening. The first time you play a Scottish golf course, it's an awakening about what the game was meant to be like. And uh, for me, that was transformative. But the most transformative moment was the Sunday that I got there. We're walking around the old course. There are people Well, the old course. Of course, you have to understand, like like Montrose, as we'll talk about later. The tee is the center of town. The first tee and the 18th green are the center of town. Yeah. Royal and Ancient Golf Club is stately to the right there. 
links road with old Tom's shop and uh, where Alan used to live and all these places are immediately to your left. So there's this ancient history all around you up the street is the golf inn where young Tommy carried the belt home from Presswick in 1870. So it's just this incredible scene. And, um, you know, so you're walking there on a Sunday and everybody's out walking their dogs. They're uh, out having a picnic right there in the Valley of Sin. They're kicking the soccer ball around, flying Frisbees because the links of St. Andrews is owned by the people of St. Andrews. It always has been. And that shows you the fundamental difference between Scottish golf and American golf. In Scotland, golf is considered a birthright. The links are your towns. They belong to everyone. Citizens of St. Andrews get to play free or for next to nothing. I can't remember the specifics of it right this minute, but, you know, and even students at St. Andrews, one of the best reasons for enrolling there is you get a student ticket to the old course because you're part of the that's town. That's the way to go. Own that. So uh, that's a great experience. But that same day, we went to see the cathedral churchyard because I knew old Tom's grave was there and his son's grave was there. And I was so incredibly struck by his son's tombstone and by so many thoughts that were in my mind when I'm looking at it. It's like 12 feet tall. It's near life size, slightly bigger than life size in terms of his figure of him standing over a putt. And on the bottom of it, there's an inscription that says that it was erected by 60 golfing societies. So after having looked into a little bit, that's every golfing society that existed. And Tommy's working class. This is incredibly strict social class Britain that we're talking about here in the Victorian age. And, and, and all of those rich men took money out of their own pocket to build a monument in his memory. And I'm thinking, yeah, wow, what what did he do? You know, how why did this happen? How could this you know, and that that was where I set out. From that minute, I was determined that I'm going to write this book about young Tom Morris come hell or high water. And it's going to be a true story uh, told strictly, you know, with no made up quotes, no nothing to help bring the story to life. Absolute fact from beginning to end. And that was my specialty in journalism. So I was excited by that at the beginning. And after that, I was looking forward to a different life for sure. Yeah. And speaking of the setting, we're talking about getting to St. Andrews, the old course, the town of St. Andrews. And to me, one of my favorite parts of, of getting over there, which is just a, an awesome experience, but the people of Scotland, wherever you are, especially though in St. Andrews, when you think about a place, you know, there's so many pubs you can go to, but I think of like the Dunvegan Hotel, which you would have frequented with, uh, you think you were saying with the Horschels, Billy Horschel and his father, right? I've had several Dunvegan Hotel, that's <laughs> fair to say. So, uh, uh, Paint, paint a picture for, for golf fans who've never been to the Dunvegan Hotel. What is it like when you walk in that place? The Dunvegan Hotel is the 19th hole of St. Andrews, and there's no other way in describing it. So it's about a block and a half from the golf course itself. So, you know, you pay your caddy. Uh, you probably didn't drive to the golf course anyway. And you can literally walk up to the 19th hole at the Dunvegan. It is always <laughs> packed and throbbing with golfers. Every inch of wall space there is covered with pictures of famous golfers uh, with the owners of the Dunvegan, <laughs> who are wonderful people themselves. And, you know, the staff there, everyone there is knowledgeable about golf, talking about golf. And so, you know, I've been there with uh, Bill. Bill, I think, is, was made a VIP of the Dunvegan in his most recent visit to St. <laughs> Andrews for Billy the 100 100- 50th open i think he got vip status probably his picture will be up on the wall soon yes but, uh, billy orschel's father for fans at home yes, yes yeah well you know i live in florida and uh 
Bill, Big Bill has been one of my buddies and golf partners for many years. And uh, his son, I've known his son since he was very young. Um, in fact, you know, his son played in the U.S. Amateur when I was working at the San Francisco Chronicle. And he uh, graciously let me carry his bag around for a practice round. So that that was a very fun experience for me. And, you know, obviously all of us here in Florida have watched with a lot of fun to see the amazing success, you know, he's gone on to have as our our local guy. So uh, it has obviously been super fun for his parents. You know what? I, I'm glad that you went down that road for a minute. What was it like for you as a newspaper editor? You're so used to being indoors and kind of uh, working on your storytelling craft, but but not so much outside. To be offered to be on the bag for at least for just for a practice round, a U.S. Amateur uh, for Billy Horschel. I mean, paint that picture. What was that like? It was amazing. It was absolutely so exciting. Uh, you know, obviously, I'd never caddied it before in my life, so this was a, just a very personal family favor to me. You know, uh, you know, B Billy, when Billy was very young, he, he sometimes camped out at my apartment there in San Francisco to uh, help with expenses and things. So, you know, I've I've been a part, you know, I've known their family well, and I've, I've had a lot of interactions with, with young Billy. And uh, so I carried this bag. Uh, we had I had, you know, I met Ricky Fowler. I saw all these other up and coming superstar golfers. So that was super duper exciting for a golf fan and super nice of, of Bill to Billy to do for me. Uh, and you know, he's been super nice to me all along when I, I was deep into the Tommy book when he got into the open in 2005 there. And, uh, he sent word to his dad that he was going to save a room in the flat for me if I could afford airfare and that would help cut down on research expenses. And I could arrange research in St. Andrews and see some of the open while I was there, which I ended up doing. And that was just pivotal to me being able to complete the book about Tommy to start with. And so yeah. I owe a lot to that family. They've been really, really nice to me. I got to go. Uh, I was with them when he won the FedEx Cup at Eastlake. Uh, Bill and his yeah, wife, Kathy, yeah. and myself were, were following little Billy all around. And they uh, gracious let me come out on the green for the ceremony at, uh, on the 18th there. So I've had some nice moments with those with those folks. And they're great people. And, uh, you know, Bill's parents have done so much to help him succeed. And I know he, he appreciates that. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, um, yeah, 2015, definitely that that first open for him. And, yeah. and it's funny, it's funny, one of my favorite moments talking to him, actually, I, I had a magazine assignment to talk to players about the open, what makes the old course so special. And my favorite soundbite from talking to probably 12 to 15 players this year going into the open was from Billy Horschel saying, man, like, the, the town, but specifically going to Dunvegan or going to some of these pubs, I love that the Scottish people we're taking care, looking after my dad. You know what I mean? Like that's what it felt like. And so by the time his dad had been going out the whole week and then finally later in the week, Billy joined him for a, for a pint. And he's like, wow, these are all your boys. Like you make quick, yeah. fast friends. Isn't, isn't that just amazing? The aspect of, of the Scottish people, right? The Scottish people are the greatest, uh, most welcoming people you can find anywhere. It doesn't <laughs> matter what part of Scotland you're in. And, and, you know, as part of the trail, I went to all parts of it, South to the Mull of Kintyre, north to Dornick, out to the uh, Cruden Bay and down the coast to Dundee and into the Lothians and down across to Presswick. So, you know, all over and everywhere you go, they just are so welcoming because, I mean, they tourism is their lifeblood. So they, uh, they appreciate that you are there. They appreciate even more that you like their country and especially if you like their golf course. And so, uh, you know, Scotland is absolutely wonderful. The first time I went, you know, with the horses in 2015, 
Bill and I were hanging out at a bar called Druzy Neighbors, which is uh, an old Scottish expression that means thirsty friends. It comes from a Robert Robert Burns. Burns yeah. Yeah. So we were hanging out in the bar. They're having a Guinness. And in walked what were clearly a large group of St. Andrew's caddies. And they weren't at their table 30 seconds before one of them comes over. Oh, Mr. Horschel, I'd recognize that Fu Manchu anywhere. We're going to buy you a drink. So we ended up spending the night drinking uh, Guinnesses with the caddies and exchanging stories like we've been friends forever. And it was a tough trip back over to the flat that evening, a little <laughs> bit of some directional challenges and this and that that followed. But, you know, you Scotland and the Scottish people are just so welcoming and fun everywhere you go. That's a big part of visiting. Yes. And to that point, um, you were on the podcast with Shane Bacon about a month or two ago, and you had said that basically the Americans look at golf as a conquest. The Scots are more about, hey, we take pride in our course. We love our course. It's not about score. You're never going to they're never going to ask you, how did you score? How did you play today? No, it's like, what do you think of our course? We love it. And so kind of explain, expound on that a little bit more about kind of the differences between how American golfers and Scottish golfers think. Well, I think the the most important difference is that Scottish golfers think that golf is a match play game and that when you're out, you should be playing a match for some gentlemanly stake, such as, you know, a small amount of money or lunch or pints afterwards or just for glory. But it's about the game and there's always a game going on between you and your partners. Right. <laughs> Very often the caddies are wagering on your game while you're at it. But, uh, so, you know, and in a game like that, there doesn't matter what your score is, except that it's lower than the opponents on this particular hole. They don't yes. ordinarily keep score in that way. They, you know, scores kept one up, one down, two up, two down. You know, it's not they're not writing down numbers as a rule uh, the way that Americans do. And God, for they would not ever put out after a hole is one, say, in a better ball match. It's like, why would you do that? The hole is one. <laughs> We're going on to the next hole. So it's just they approach it more as a, a game that's played between opponents as opposed to you going out attempting to conquer this golf course by posting your lowest score ever when you played there. And that's really the fundamental difference between Scottish golfers and golfers pretty much anywhere. English golfers are very much focused on score as U.S. golfers are. And I think most many golfers around the world and probably even a few so Scotsmen are succumbing. But. But, but but I think, you know, um, it's a match play game there. And that's what that's the way things are played. A lot of the old great clubs like Muirfield, the members still play foursomes, alternate shot. That That's the ultimate I don't care about my score game because you only play half the strokes to start. Right. You can never, ever get an American to play that game. I keep trying. I haven't given up. I can, let's play a foursome. No way. You only take half the shots. It's just a different way of looking at golf. Yeah, and obviously the Americans, they want their results just right in front of them. Okay, yeah. what did I do? What what can I tell people at the end of the day kind of thing? And that, that's just kind of ingrained in us. Um, we talked a little earlier about Montrose Golf Links, which is kind of similar to St. Andrews in that you're so close to the, to the town center where you tee off. And you go out along the water or along the dunes and you play that course, you come back, you finish there in town. And you can see like this, for lack of a better term, the skyline of the town. You see the old church, you see just the town center just right, right there as you're coming in. And so I'm just curious for you, this is the fifth oldest golf course in the world. 1562 is what it dates back to. Why is Montrose a course that golf fans should get out to? It's not an open championship road, course. I know that, but, but why is it important? 
this goes to something that I think of as hugely important. And I'm so happy that you asked this question. I think one of the major mistakes golf travelers from the United States make is when they go to Scotland, their goal is to play as many top 100 courses <laughs> as it is possible for them to check off. And this often involves huge amounts of running around where you're spending more time on the road than you are in the pub, a fundamental party error right away. <laughs> and, um, and But more important than that, you miss a lot of what I would call true Scottish golf experiences, of which Montrose is a picture-perfect example. You know, Montrose, like so many courses, like St. Andrews, starts in town. And, uh, you know, you know how when you take a trip, you just some visual memories stick with you? Oh, yeah. Uh, I took oh, yeah. a trip in Scotland for a month all along the old Tom Morris Trail. And one of the visuals that keeps popping up in my mind is walking off the first tee and up the hill there at Montrose. And then you're, you're approaching your next shot. And it looks like the green is out in infinity somewhere because it's more or less right up against the edge of, of the beach there where the, where the Firth is out beyond there. And it, so it just, it was a spectacular memory there. And those first four or five holes, I think it might, might even be six holes on the sixth hole. I think you turn inland, but those first five holes there along the shoreline are just classically spectacular links golf. The third hole there, which is a, which is a Harry Colt hole, actually, he ended up designing the final iteration of Montrose. Um, that that part three, part yeah, it's just fabulous. Over to the tabletop green, any timid shot, which of course is the sort of shot your faithful correspondent sadly hit, uh, winds up <laughs> way down below the green. Uh, and you know, pitching up and holding the green from there, uh, is a very, very tough shot, also beyond the skill of your correspondent. But I love playing that course, that that hole, the third, the 16th, is was a hugely famous hole in history called mm. the gully it's still a very difficult par three where uh there's a huge mound that is sort of you know sandy and some bent grass in there up yes. on the left and then the green kind of runs wickedly away to the right from it with big hollow in the middle and it's i think it's like 200 plus from any of the of the t's so it's a par four in disguise the way the way i would look at it but in play, any case yeah. uh in the past, the whole left side of that was one of these giant sand bunkers that you sometimes see in the ancient pictures, uh, maybe a half an acre or something. Uh, Horace Hutchinson in his book, Famous Golf Links, described it as like as bad or worse as the hell bunker at St. Andrews in its oh, A-Day. So it was a fearsome hazard and it was quite a famous hole. And uh, the links land there is just great, you know. Uh, in the early days, uh, even Hutchinson himself considered three links the best in Scotland, Dornick, Montrose, and St. Andrews. Mm. And, you know, fortunes have changed for the town since then, but the links land hasn't changed at all. And uh, that's why it's such a wonderful place to be playing. Yeah, and, and also I think that the finish is, is quite interesting. You, you know, when you see Royal, um, was it St. Anne's? Let them in St. Anne's. It's right there, and you're up against that clubhouse, and the glass yes. is like – like 20 uh, it feels like it's 20 feet away from the back of the green like you just have no real estate and in the case of Montrose you got this hotel a restaurant right. that's overlooking and uh, I was talking to head pro Jason Boyd and he said there's an art to like chipping behind the green because you're kind of like playing off all these different bounces what do you make of kind of that finishing stretch the finishing stretch is really wonderful you know 16 <laughs> obviously the beastly par three and you have a pretty difficult par five that's in that stretch too with the 
really tough to approach green that's sloping away from you. And of course that finishing hole is, is terror because if you fly more than five yards over the back of that green, you're going to be bouncing on the road and up into the hotel window. So it's, it's a, it's a road hole of its own sort, really, when you think about it. So, yeah. you know, I loved Montrose. I love that kind of golf experience because that's the golf 90% of Scotsmen play. You know, Scotsmen are not playing the old course in Dornick every afternoon unless they're fortunate members. The average golfer in Scotland is playing a place like Montrose or Cullen or Crail, places like that that are smaller and more fabulous. Yes, and it's interesting. Um, I, I want to think about the significance of Montrose, maybe the history. And you had mentioned recently in a message to me that you read uh, the two club histories about Montrose. What did you glean from that? Montrose, at the at the age when golf was really um, just starting to become the Royal and Ancient Game, 1562, the era of Montrose, and in, in, the, in the, say, 100 or 200 years after that, Montrose was a very flourishing center that had lots and lots of wealthy barons and other sorts of folks living there. And they, uh, the, and Montrose golf course itself was a premier links in Scotland. As I was mentioning earlier, it had so much links land at one point it had 25 holes and uh, there was an actually a tournament held there over 25 holes. So it was an 8,000 yard golf course. And this is 1866. Man, and it was also man. the first tournament in which professionals competed that an amateur won. And that was a baker from Glasgow named William Dolman. So it's quite a, a famous moment in history, but it was uh, one of, it was in many ways um, wealthier and better off than St. Andrews up until say 1840 after Sir Hugh Lyon Playfair had returned home from India and restored St. Andrews to the Victorian glory it now enjoys. But in the first part of the, of the 1800s, Montrose was uh, quite a lot fancier than St. Andrews and had more wealthy people. And so the golf was extremely prominent there at the beginning. A lot of literary history traces to Montrose also because it was a Montrose resident, Robert Clark, who wrote the first great history of golf in 1875. George Fullerton Carnegie, who wrote a famous book of poetry called Golfiana about golf. He wrote about St. Andrews and he lived in Edinburgh, but all of his wealth came from his grandmother in Montrose. So, you know, yeah. Montrose uh, played a role in the in the history of golf literature that's kind of interesting. So it was a big center then and, and quite thriving. It, it isn't as much now, obviously, but it still has a brilliantly wonderful golf course and a great uh, clubhouse to go into afterwards and enjoy a pint. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. Um, what about the experience of playing the course? You know, you're right. You play that first hole, you go up the hill. When I think about the experience of Montrose, you're so exposed off the first tee. You, you know, you're, you're hitting right off a road uh, near the town center. You've got a restaurant over here. You've got a soccer field over here. Like, it feels like half the town could be watching you potentially on the first tee. You know what I'm saying? And so there, you, when we play teed off, there are a group of older gentlemen sitting across the road <laughs> on a bench uh, making cogent observations about the outcomes. So, uh, you know, that's how it is in St. Andrews, too. When you tee off, on the first tee at St. Andrews, there might be 50 people watching between uh, groups waiting to tee off and townspeople who just enjoy sitting there watching the golf. And, you know, it's interesting at St. Andrews, and I'm sure this is true at Montrose too, if there's enough of a crowd, um, when you hit a good shot, there'll be a comment. Somebody will say, Bonnie shot, sir, or whatever. <laughs> uh, if you hit a terrible shot, it will be just absolute deafening silence, which is, uh, which is a punishment worse than death actually. But uh, so, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's interesting to be teeing off in those kinds of circumstances, sort of on the regular in Scotland. 
Right. Very old is like that too. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You, you know, you go back to the old course and, and I think about the experience, the feel when you're around the old course, whether it was you maybe walking it for the first time in 05 or playing it in, in recent years, like w what really sticks out with you in the experience of, of being out there and walking that course? You know, for me in particular, as a historian, it's uh, the overwhelming weight of history on your shoulders uh, as you tee off on the first uh, <laughs> tends to be uh, approach paralyzing, you know, uh, and, yeah. you know, young Tommy, old Tom, every hero you can name has played there. Some have solved the puzzle of it and others haven't. Varden never won there. Varden uh, just never could adapt to the fact that good shots got bad bounces. And uh, and um, he just never never solved the puzzle of St. Andrews. But so just Bobby Jones, everyone you can name all up through the modern greats, you feel the weight of that history all around the golf course. The golf course is puzzling, especially the first time you play it. Um, I think a lot of first time golfers uh, go, go off the golf course. They're thinking, how on earth has this been viewed by everyone as the greatest golf course in the world? It must be the history or whatever, because it's right. it's. Like, I think Bernard Darwin's lead to his essay in Golf Course of the British Isles is really to know the old course is not given to the casual visitor. And I think that's good advice to have in your mind as you play it, because you need to play that course a goodly number of times uh, to understand the strategy of it and how each shot should be played. And uh, <clears throat> when you don't know enough, yeah, the punishment <laughs> is really severe. Right. Well, we're talking about the old course, but I, I want to segue into some other courses you're really passionate about. I think about, you know, you've done this trip, the, the old Tom Morris trip up north. And you talk about the, that book you loved, um, or, or the article you loved, North to the Links of Dornick. Think about yeah. Royal Dornick and what's around Dornick. I think about the experience when you get to Royal Dornick and you get to play that course for, for the first time. You know, if, if, you, if you're not, a lot of these golf fans, they may not know they may not have heard of Dornock. It's funny when you think about it, it's such a famous and well-known course to a lot of us purists, but they may not have heard of it. What is, what's the experience like in the playability on that course? Dornick is, is Dornick is such a fabulous golf course. Uh, it might be the greatest single walk in golf because, you know, it is, um, there are no water hazards in Dornick. There are bunkers, but not what you would call a surfeit of bunkers. There's a lot of gorse, but honestly, the main strategy of the course is uh, created by the nature of the landscape. You know, the famous 14th hole Foxy has no bunkers. Um, it's just one of the toughest par four holes in the world. And yet it has not a single hazard. It's just the double yeah. dog leg, the way mounds block your vision. If you hit it in the wrong spot, that the awkward angle of the oblong green toward yeah. the fairway yeah creates oh, intense difficulty in holding a shot on there. So literally it's not defended by anything other than terrain. And, you know, Dornick is one of these golf courses. The fundamental question of Dornick asks you as a player is how many shots are in your bag and can you produce them here and now, you know, uh, the second hole at Dornick has to be one of the hardest par threes in golf. Um, you know, the fairway is sloping wickedly towards you. <laughs> Uh, there's bunkers waiting at the bottom of the hill there, and there's a mound ready to reject anything that doesn't reach. If it does reach, it might not hold. If it doesn't hold, 
you know, you got a lot of options from off the green. And by the time it's over, you might have tried them all. It's a very uh, tricky golf course in that way. But it it's just really one of the great places in all of golf, in my opinion, one of the great courses you could ever wish to play. The other great thing about it is the town itself and the highlands are so beautiful. The town right. is just this fabulous old st- stone town. Uh, a lot going on in town, great food and really lovely restaurants and a lot of great golf nearby, Brora, Goldspeed, Tain. So it's a great place to go and stay for golf. You know what I mean? Stay yeah. with the yeah. idea you're going to play eight or nine courses in this area or play however many rounds. And, you know, Dornick's sister course, Struy, is a wonderful golf course also. So I would, if I had to make a top five of golf courses I have played in the world, and I've played a lot of really nice golf courses, uh, Dornick would be in it for sure. No, Royal Dornick, I, I love that place. And, and the area around Dornick, there's so many good courses. Tain, you've got Goldsby, as you mentioned earlier. I love being in the town. The views around there, the course, uh, the greens are so unique there at Goldsby too. The challenge is there. But I think about Brora. That's really, of course, Brora Golf Club, which has so many unique sides to it. You have sheep on the course, you have livestock on the course, and that's part of the challenge too. What is that experience like for the everyday golfer when they get up there? I'll tell you this, you know, as I said earlier, my first trip to Scotland finished with the round at Brora. And, uh, you know, I hadn't realized that at that moment that I was experiencing the most authentic golf experience in Scotland that, that I would ever experience probably until I played Ashkernish. Uh, but, you know, when you tee off at, at, at Brora, it's almost as if you're in the opening of the greatest game ever played. I don't know if you remember how that <laughs> film opens where they tee off and the ball lands and the sheep scatter. Well, that that's how it is at Brora. You know, uh, there's always sheep and cattle in the fairways. I believe they're, they're leased out to local farmers, which is a, used to be a, quite a common practice in Scotland. And, and the animals mainly tended the golf course and left, left the fertilizer right there for you. Um, all the greens at Brora are protected by electric fences. Uh, but it's a brilliant Miles. layout. It's a brilliant. So you step over the electric fence to putt, and it keeps the sheep and cattle off. Um, the the course was designed by James Braid, who's uh, one of the, number one, one of the great architects uh, of ever, and probably one of the best professional golfer architects of all time. You know, he uh, won the Open Championship five times. He won the News of the World Championship, which was the British PGA Championship, which was match play in that age, as the original. PGA Championship in the United States was uh, four and times. And he's a Scottish hero. I mean, they, they, oh, they revere Scottish. the guy. So that's one of his most famous designs. Peter Thompson, the great Australian golfer, uh, played it and loved it so much that it moved him to help found the James Braid Society, uh, which is still headquartered at Brora. So, you know, it, pays, it plays an important role in Scottish golf, but it's not possible to have a more fun or more authentic experience of golf in Scotland than playing Brora uh, on a beautiful uh, day in summertime. That's for sure. Yeah. And that finishing hole, like it's so beautiful. You see it on their social media, like just uh, the finishing green, the the contours, you can, you can play the ground game. You can hit just a nice high shot in it. There's just so much beauty to that finish and, and a great clubhouse after. Yes. No, it's, it's a really, it just has a great vibe about it. In addition to being wonderful golf, and, you know, it's a type of golf that I like to think of as sporting. So it's not really a championship test per se, although it's a test of every shot you own. So I think in, in the old days, they would refer to uh, hazards as sporting hazards or 
sporting golf. And I love that expression because I feel like it captures courses like Dunbar, Crail, Brewer. I haven't played Goldsby from everything I've read and seen. It captures Brewer. But it's, it's a course where it's more about cunning and strategy and shot making than length. And Scotland is full of those kinds of courses. And yes. those tend to be my favorites. Yeah, I you know another one that comes to mind along those lines would be something like Nairn, which is right there along the water. It's you're fully exposed to the elements. I mean, there's nowhere to hide. There's a lot of gorse. There's some great bunkering at Nairn. What is that uh, challenge like for 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 golf fans to get out there and play Nairn? Well, Nairn and Nairn, honestly, Garrett, I would put Nairn more in the championship test category because that's hosted Walker Cups. It's literally hosted everything you can have except for the Open. And if you go in to look at their honor board, like one of the early <laughs> big champions is Colin Montgomery. So that, you know, that there was a, a, a that course is a great golf course. You know, the Murray, that's fine, yeah. the Murray Firth there where Nairn is located uh, is where the Gulf Stream ends. So it goes around the tip of Scotland and ends over there in the Murray Firth. And that creates spectacularly gorgeous weather on the main compared to many other parts of Scotland. So Nairn, Murray Old, Cullen, all the Cortain, all the courses that are along the greater Moray Firth tend to have quite lovely weather. Nairn <laughs> is just every hole you can see the ocean. Uh, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a, you know, dominant, overpowering, long championship test, but it's a definite championship test. The wind is always blowing very strongly at Nairn because of its location right on the seaside. And it's, it's a fairly straight out and back riding, a little wiggling around at the turn, but you're fighting the wind on your way out and, enjoying the wind on your way on home way in, yeah. uh, or vice versa, depending on how the wind blows that particular day. But there's a couple things about Nairn that I think people, if they do get to go there, must do. Absolutely must do. They have one of the coolest uh, halfway houses in all of golf. Yes. Uh, it's called the Bothy. And a Bothy is an old salmon fishing cottage. So all along the Murray first, there was salmon fishing and there were like eight, 15, I think or so of these Bothies. Uh, and then behind it, is another small thing that was a salmon storage shed. So these things yeah. have been now converted into a halfway house, and they're just pretty unique in golf. The other thing is Nairn is really, really proud of its history as a golf club, and they have an archive room there that is just to die for. I almost miss my tea time uh, because <laughs> since I'm a historian, he kindly left me alone in the archive room, probably not the very best of ideas in the sense of, I got so caught up in everything that uh, they had to run out and yell for me because I was going to miss my. <laughs> well, but, you were you were a history major after all. I mean, come on, you're in your yeah, element. So I was in my element there, and <laughs> I recommend if you do go to Nairn, you really need to make a reservation with them to get brought up into the archive room because it's a it's a collection of fabulous artifacts. You can open the minute book, the first minute book of the day the club was founded, and read in somebody's handwritten writing. You know, beautiful scroll. The, the names of the people who founded it, what Andrew Simpson had to say about the prospects of the course and this and that. So it's just, it's a, it's a unique and cool experience. Uh, and Nairn is just, Nairn was one of my favorite spots on the old Tom Morris trail, to be honest. Yeah. And the old Tom Morris trail, and there's 18 courses. Um, you had enjoyed it back in June of 2022. And, and it's something that people can, can really get into and plan. And, and it's really, it, it's a, it's a great, great thing to do. Now, 
Crail is on that list and Crail's yes. the first Lynx experience you ever had. So yes. so give us a, an idea when you set foot on Crail, if you get to play that course, what what, what does it feel like when you're there? Crail is is uh, one of the oldest courses in golf. Uh, you know, there was an age, when, you know, when the Royal and Ancient and the Honorable Company, all these courses were formed and, and Crail was one of those. Uh, the Lynx land at Crail on the Balcomi links there. I haven't ever played the uh, Craighead links, which is actually one of Gil Hans's first designs, but uh, is spectacularly undulating. It's just perfect for golf because there's a lot of elevation change. Your first tee shot is from an elevated tee downhill toward this beautiful old cottage that's yeah. one of the nicer sights on the links. Uh, when you're playing either the fourth or the fifth hole, both of those are what I would call early versions of a cape hole. So how much of the ocean are you going to try to carry? Just a little bit like the first at Makrahanish as well. And, and the same is true of the fifth. You know, there are old stone walls all over the place. When you're playing the eighth, the whole the entire right side of the fairway is guarded by a stone wall beyond which is out of bounds. When you're playing that little short uh, eight, I think it's uh, might be the ninth hole, uh, a little tiny par four with the wickedly sloping green that's right up against the, the stone wall. The stone wall, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. It's, this right of that green, you're out of bounds. Uh, you know, you could try You could drive that green. Most people could drive that green, not me, but but actual golfers. Uh, but it's so dangerous, you know, to try that uh, with the way that the thing's situated. So it's absolute barrel of fun to play. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just it, it, every hole is an adventure. It's got one double green that's kind of reminiscent of St. Andrews. On the 8th, you share that green with the 11th, big giant. Like a lot of Tom's courses, original Tom Morris courses, they have these fabulously natural green sites that are often very wickedly undulating or have giant hollows or, uh, or you know, run away from you or towards you or run off at all sides. So the challenge of his courses is primarily on and around the greens, a lot of them. Yeah. And Crail yeah. is like that. Yes. And, and I, I would I would finish up. Kind of, I'm kind of cherry picking some of the courses here uh, from the old Tom Morris Trail. Obviously, Bonnie Wee Golf puts that on and they do a great job. Um, but I'm also looking at North Berwick. I mean, that experience, I remember uh, I, I remember being with at the Open Championship 2015 and talking with Ricky Fowler's caddy, Joe Scovran, who's who loves golf. And so he loves to play himself. And when I told him, yeah, I'm going to play uh, North Berwick, you know, the day after the Open, he's like, dude, that's going to be your favorite. I'm going to tell you this right now. Mark my words. That will be your favorite experience. And I was like, what? Well, I, I, I even barely even heard of it myself in my first trip over to Scotland there in 2015. And, and it was. And it just left this great impression with me. I love the original Redan hole. There's just so many great it's such a fun walk. Like I just can't get over how, how, how fun it is. It's, it's, it's unforgettable. Uh, the green complexes, I mean, to coming down the stretch, it finishes there right in town, kind of like 18 does at, at the old course. So for you, what are the takeaways from a course like North Berwick? North Berwick is as much fun as it's possible to have playing golf. I mean, if you don't <laughs> okay. like North Berwick, I think it's time for you to look in the mirror and ask yourself, what's wrong with me? What is wrong with me? North Berwick is just absolutely fabulous from the opening shot to the finishing shot, you know, you start again in town. The other thing is there aren't that many clubs that are more welcoming to visitors than North Barrett. They love having you there. You get treated like a king. You get treated like you're a member for a day, basically. A lot of courses are like that, Cruden Bay is like that. But, you know, especially welcoming place. Um, you know, obviously the views of the Bass Rock there, 
uh, are beyond spectacular. For me, of course, I have a special affection for North Berwick for two, diff two different reasons. One is uh, that that is where old Tom Morris basically made his bones as a golfer. He and Alan Robertson in 1849 are playing in a big match for a lot of money, 200 pounds sterling aside. In 1849, those were big dollars against the Dunn brothers of Musselboro, and they're way behind. <laughs> they, they pull it out on the, on the very end and win the match. But more importantly for me is 1875, old and young Tom are playing a match against Willie and Mungo Park of Musselboro, four open champions in a match together pretty big draw. And it was at the end of that match when the Morrises pulled it out, rather sloppy golf, to be honest, okay. uh, especially for <laughs> champions. But the Morrises end up winning. And on that green, right then, a, a messenger elbows his way through the crowd and hands Tommy a telegram that says, your wife is struggling in childbirth. You need to get home immediately. And of course, it's late in the afternoon at North Berwick. You can't get home immediately. Yeah. He ends yeah. up sailing home on a yacht that one of the members lent, took him on a yacht took six hours, got there in the dark, walked up the street and found his wife and his baby son dead in, mm -hmm. uh, in the house that he was living in. So, you know, the memories of those kinds of innocence are in my mind when I'm uh, walking around Gulf, you know, North Berwick and I can see, see the harbor that Tommy sailed from. And, you know, there's just a lot of great matches have been played. That was usually the finishing course for a lot of the great matches between St. Andrews and Musselboro because it was considered neutral territory. So, so many of the great challenge matches were played there. Harry Varden and, uh, and um, Willie Park Jr. had their big giant match, uh, was played partly at North Berwick and the other part at Ganton. So there's just a lot of history there to enjoy. And the holes, the holes are just so many fabulous holes there. Uh, the second hole where you have to carry the stone wall, that's right in the middle of the fairway. Uh, you know, the 13th, the pit that's tucked behind the stone wall perfection, the Redan, that uh, the, the, the Byrich green there, I think it's the 16th uh, on the back nine, where if you have that back flag position, that's, there might not be a more adventuresome putt in the entire <laughs> game than that putt there from the front of the green to a back pin on the 16th there at North Berwick. So, and then, you know, the, the home hole is so dangerous, not, not because there's cars parked all along the right oh, hand yeah. side, fairly fancy looking cars. And, uh, so it just strikes fear in the heart of any person who tends to make a mistake shot right, which I would say is about 90% Most. of all golfers. <laughs> right? uh, it's a great finishing hole, and I love uh, the clubhouse there at North Berwick and uh, just the whole atmosphere of North Berwick and the town. It's one of the main resorts of Scotland, so it has you know nicer restaurants than you might find in a typical small Scottish town. So it's a really, it's a really neat place to be. It is, yeah, and and – I want to just kind of finish up on your two books, of course, about young Tom Morris, the monarch of the green, and also um, the long golden afternoon golf's age of glory. What is the best way that listeners can kind of order those or, or, or be aware of those? And, and also what's kind of, what do you want them to take away from those, from those books? Here's what I want, Garrett, is the thing that drives me crazy about golf is that if you were a fan of the New York Yankees, you would be quite well aware of Ruth and Gehrig and all the other great players that came before and after them. You know your history. For reasons that I don't grasp, very few golfers know the history of their game or seem to care. That's fair. And, um, 
even great golfers who you would think having achieved at a high level or competed at a high level would maybe be interested in the history more so, but so few are. And so one of the things that I have tried to do is to write the history of these great events in, with two things in mind. One is to make it a story that any person can read and enjoy. That's told in an easy reading sort of way, even if it might be as exhaustively researched as any tedious history book you ever read. <laughs> the second thing is to really try to help people understand how great the play was in these ages when it's difficult to connect strictly to the numerical score, to help them understand how great a numerical score would be given the context of the age in terms of weaponry, balls, agronomy, everything like that. So that's what I've tried to do is to help bring the history so that a golfer will be able to identify John Ball, probably the greatest player no one's ever heard of, in the same way that a baseball player can tell you the statistics of Lou Gehrig. One day I hope golfers can say John Ball won 99 matches in the Amherst Championship and he won it eight times, which is just stupid. Yeah, 1890 Open champion. Uh, yeah, pretty... first amateur to win the Open, first Englishman. Uh, you know, and a person that every golfer should have known about and no golfers know about, literally no golfers. Right. Well, Stephen Proctor, really enjoyed getting to know you here on the podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at SProctorGolf. And uh, again, appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Garrett. It's really important, you know, to get a chance to speak to people like you. So I appreciate the opportunity and enjoy your podcast. All right, my thanks to Stephen Proctor for jumping on the pod. Of course, we went through a whole range of different courses, Montrose Golf Links. We talked about North Barrick Crail, which is over there by St. Andrews. Uh, so there's a lot of good ones to visit when you make the cha- make it out and you have the chance to get to the home of golf, which is the overall country of Scotland. It's totally worth it, a lot of fun. And I, I had a blast when I was there last summer. So I hope you guys get a chance to make it out there at some point, well worth your time. And just the beauty of Lynx Golf. I mean, just playing the bump and run, playing those low chip shots and really trying to get it to release. I love playing that kind of golf and uh, just being creative. It really brings out a different side, I think, creatively to your game. So I hope you guys like this episode and we'll catch up soon here on Beyond the Clubhouse.